more for most people means some achievement, some promotion, some bonus, some status, you know, some new thing on their LinkedIn, whatever it is. That's what most people define as their more. And so they're like, oh, I'm going to be happy with that thing. And so they start on the quest for that next thing. And it's an achievement. It's not a daily action. For me, more is a daily action. More is I want to get a little bit smarter today, or I want to get a little bit better at this thing that I'm working at, or I want to understand the world a little bit more, have a great conversation with a friend to deepen that relationship. That is my definition of more. It's daily actions. It's like those unremarkable things every single day that are my version of more. If you're like me, then the quest for better often starts with more. More tasks, more goals, more planning, more meetings, more time on the range, no more time on the course, more effort, more discipline, more focus, so on and so on. Eventually, as I'm sure you know, this more approach becomes overwhelming and ultimately is just the beginning stage of a nasty cycle that leaves us feeling like we either underperformed or outright failed. So, my hope today is to present an alternative framework for breaking that cycle. I first started following Sahil Bloom's work after a Twitter thread he published titled The Time Billionaire. It's a concept that doesn't focus on having more time, but rather understanding the precious nature of the time we do have and appreciating the ordinary moments that make up most of our lives. Sahil is a factory for these types of wisdom nuggets, lots of which you can find in his newsletter and podcast called The Curiosity Chronicle. His words and ideas are reaching millions of people daily, but Bloom only started writing about these topics in 2021. Before that, he played baseball at a school called Stanford University, where he twice won the school's award for the student-athlete that best exemplifies excellence. After school, he entered into the investment world with zero experience in finance, and a few years later, he was managing around $3.5 billion in assets. Oh, and recently, he completed his first marathon after only a few months of training. You get the idea. He gets shit done, and he gets better at things quickly. However, as you'll hear, he's not doing it by trying to do more. He tried that, and it nearly broke him. He's doing it with clear priorities, by giving himself a break, and with a deep appreciation for the little stuff that leads to big stuff. So, if in January you told yourself that this is the year you would break 100, 90, 80, or maybe even 70, and now, in Q4 of 2023, you're telling yourself that you don't have the time, then hopefully this conversation with Sahil helps. I'm personally very excited to talk to you. Um, I think that your outlook on uh, performance, on growth, on self Im- self improvement, all of these sort of themes um, can help provide a a fresh perspective on what's called the ancient dilemma of you know getting small white ball into a hole. <laughs> so um, I, I would like to start here though. Before you were a successful entrepreneur, before you were a you know fund manager, author. Uh, media consultant, spiritual Twitter guru, and we could go on and on. Um, you were a pitcher. You were a very good baseball pitcher at Stanford. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious where the competitor, if the competitor, that competitor still exists in you today and sort of where, where he comes out. Yeah. I don't think competitiveness ever goes away. Okay. Um, I think that people are either wired to be extremely competitive or not. And I actually don't think you can 
become a really incredible competitor if you don't have this like innate wiring in you. And frankly, I think I was probably um, 70 or 80% of the way to being like a true incredible competitor. I saw people and had to play around some elite, elite athletes. And my perspective was always that they just had a different gear of competitiveness where when they were on, they literally wanted to kill you. Like you could be their best friend in the world and they just wanted to bury you. And there was no turning it off. And it actually turns away friends. Like you see The Last Dance, Michael Jordan, right? amazing documentary if you haven't seen it. And he talks about that. Like there was a cost to his success and his winning. And it was like, you weren't going to like me. If you were on my team and I was pushing you in practice because of the competitor he was, he wasn't always going to be friends with you. And he had to come to terms with that. And I think the same thing applies to business, by the way, that there are just leaders and business leaders who are wired that way. Steve Jobs was that way. You might not like working with him. Mm -hmm because he was going to push you to be the best version of yourself. And that might mean being really, really hard and riding you really, really hard. Um, and so I think that that competitiveness, there's a switch that some people are able to turn on that is very, very hard for them to turn off oftentimes that impacts other areas of their life, but it allows them to perform at that 0.001% level to achieve those extreme things. I was like an 80% diluted version of that where I could turn it on and I was really hyper-focused. And when I was in the zone, I was very much in the zone and that applied to training for baseball and then it applied to the games and baseball partially because I just wasn't that talented so I knew I had to be able to really focus in but it drained me doing that like it wasn't an easy thing for me to flip on it was really tiring and I knew that after a game I was really going to crash on the back end of that but that like that energy I don't think that ever goes away and now I'm trying to find and I'm striving to find different areas where I can channel it I just started running a lot and I went and ran my first race and I was blown away because it was the first thing that I had ever really felt competitive around for really the last like 10 years of my life. You know, I played golf and I would compete with buddies, but it was always more cordial because I was never particularly good. I was mm -hmm. like, you know, I probably got down to like a nine or a 10. I was okay. It's pretty good. But it was, it was hard to be really competitive when you're still kind of slapping it around and running. I was like, I can actually do pretty well in this. And during this race, um, I really felt that competitive instinct kick in. Like I was running way faster than what my plan was. And there was just this guy that for whatever reason, I just decided this one guy wasn't going to beat me. And I just saw him and he knew, he didn't know me. Like he was in front of me, whatever. But the whole race, I just felt that edge. And it was the first time in 10 years that I had felt it. So it was kind of fun. Yeah. What did Mike say? If you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. Um, would you say that um, you can you are either a competitor or you are not? How does that? Do you think the same applies to sort of this hustler mindset that a lot of people see in you? Um, you know, because like uh, if if you take golf for example, if you want to get better at golf, right? And you add and you're a normal you know adult mm -hmm. and you have job, kids, relationships, other life commitments. It's a thing like like starting a business that requires a lot of attention mm -hmm. and requires a lot of time. You know, so there, there is this hustler's mentality that people need to have if they are going to improve in this, in yeah. this area. Can you develop that? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that that is like a natural human condition, actually, which is wanting to get better at things. Uh -huh. And I think everyone has that. People, you want to get better at whatever it is that you're doing. I, there are very few people in the world who I think just genuinely don't care about getting better at 
something. And it might be that they want to get better at something that's actually not good for them. That's sure. very possible. Right. Um, you know, knowing all the details about the Kardashians' life probably isn't necessary or positive for your life, but some people really like that and that gives them energy. And so um, I think the natural human condition is to want to improve at things. And then the whole game is there's a finite number of things that you can conceivably get better at because you have finite energy. And so you have to figure out for your own life, what are those things that you're willing to commit energy to, to get better at? And, you know, if family is one of them, that's really important to you. You have to commit a certain amount of energy to being present, to being with your family and to improve those relationships, build those relationships. If golf is one, you have to apply a certain amount of energy. I personally think golf takes a lot of energy to get better at because it wasn't a natural thing for me. Um, so I have to decide if I have that like pool of energy for kind of hobbyist type things, is it golf for me or is it like weightlifting, running, you know, any mm -hmm. of these other areas. And those are the trade-offs that you end up having to figure out out. But I do think the natural bias for humans is to want to try to get better at things. Yeah. How do you go about, you know, um, when you leave college, right, and you, you get into the financial world, uh, from everything I've read, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like you didn't exactly uh, know what you were, <laughs> yeah. what you were doing yeah, there. Not. And four years later, you're, you know, managing billions of dollars. How do you, and, and it seems like you've applied that even into your recent, into your writing and, mm -hmm. um, and media. How do you go about sort of setting a roadmap for yourself to get better at something? Yeah. I'm a big believer that, um, if you're not feeling like an imposter along the way, you're probably not pushing yourself enough. Mm. Uh, I read at one point that there was this post that basically said um, video games when you're a kid teach you that if you're coming across enemies on your journey, you're actually going the right direction. And imposter syndrome to me is one of those enemies that should be telling you that you're actually going the right direction. You're feeling like you're pushing yourself. You're on the edge of your competency level or you're out of your competency level, out of your depth. And those are the things you actually need to run towards. And I always tried to pursue things that made me feel that way. And that is like a general rule for life for me is when I got into the world of finance, as you said, I had no clue what I was doing. And I didn't know what private equity was. I got this job. I don't think I could have defined it to them. I had no experience. But I knew that I was willing to put in the energy and put in the time and put in the work to figure it out and to do just as well, if not better, than anyone else that was doing it with me. And that mentality applies to anything that you're going after. Um, so that was, that has generally been how I've tried to pursue things is just push myself to the point where I'm feeling those enemies, feeling those, you know, feelings of imposter syndrome of, uh, you know, the oh shit moments along the way. And when you're doing that, if you know that you're willing to put in the work to figure it out, it's just a matter of time at that point. Yeah. So the, so imposter syndrome to you is a natural byproduct of, of elevating of growth. I think so. Um, I mean, I've always felt like all of these things are a double-edged sword, right? Like if you feel imposter syndrome and it's crippling to you, mm -hmm. then you need to shift your mindset around what it is. Because the flip is imposter syndrome tells you, oh my God, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Everyone's going to know that I have no clue what I'm doing. The mindset shift around it is, I don't know what I'm doing here yet. And it's just a matter of time until I figure it out. And when you make that mindset shift, then all of a sudden anything becomes exciting because you're just time. It's just time between now and when you're going to have it figured out and everyone's going to be patting you on the back. Um, and that is a really empowering thing to feel. Yeah. I think I got a little ahead of myself because I have lots of things I want to ask you. Um, <laughs> what, can you give us an idea? Like what is a normal busy week 
look like for you? How many, like, what what are the honey jars that you have your hands in? And how do you go about yeah. sort of determining what you're going to do? Yeah. Well, fortunately, not super busy anymore. Um, busyness is, uh, you know, something that I write about and talk about a lot. It's like we all feel a need to say that we're busy. Um, we all feel really busy because we take on too much. And the reality is a lot of that comes from taking on things that actually aren't moving the needle that aren't really important. We're taking on a lot of urgent things and not a lot of important stuff along the way. So that's, that's kind of a separate point that we can talk about later. But for me personally, um, I really try to kind of hone in my day around two real focused blocks of work. Um, the first one is early in the morning, like from about five 30 to seven 30 in the morning. I do kind of my creative work block which is when I'm writing for the most part. Uh, I'm working on a book right now, as you alluded to, and then any of the writing that I'm doing, whether it's my newsletter or for Twitter or any of these other platforms, that's when I'm most creative is first thing in the morning. My mind is fresh. You don't have all the stresses of whatever comes in during the day. And so I really try to do focused, uh, you know, two hours of like really head down, no distractions type work. Then I'm like spending time with my son out on a long walk. Uh, you know, I'm working out, doing all these different things. And so I try to have a second block of work, which is really more like business ecosystem focused um, in the afternoon, like call it, you know, 1230 to 230 or something like that. Um, and so I would say my day is really built around those two blocks. And if nothing else happens, if all I get was those two focus blocks of work, it was a good day and I know I can get a ton done. Um, and if it ends up being more and I have, you know, other like energy and I'm excited to dive into something and be focused on it, I will do that, but I don't have to. And so I know that if I have four hours of like focused work during a day that I can get a ton done and really drive a lot of things forward. Um, and the principle behind that is Parkinson's law. Parkinson's law completely changed my life. It's the idea that work expands to fill the time allotted for its completion. So if you have eight hours to do something, you'll take eight hours to do it. But if you have an hour to do it, you'll figure out a way to get it done in an hour in the most efficient and you know highest intensity way possible. And so what I find is that actually setting time limits that are constrained around getting things done makes you do them more efficiently. The most classic example of this to me is email. I used to spend my entire day emailing. I would mm-hmm. just be like great raising on email, just like responding to things slowly, then jump on Twitter, then jump around to something else, whatever. Now I just set a window every day, 30 minutes where I'm going to do email. And I will knock out an entire inbox of stuff in that 30 minutes because I'm so laser focused and that's the only thing that I need to do. And I know I need to get it done because otherwise I'm not going to have time for it around the rest of the day. Um, So Parkinson's law, I think, is a massive unlock when you start using it to to your advantage in that way. How do you enforce those time constraints? Uh, I have it blocked on my calendar. Um, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm like super regimented about time boxing, but there's this concept of time boxing where you basically are blocking out windows on your calendar for different types of tasks. It might not be an actual call. It literally might just be like, if you look at my calendar, 530 to 730 is blocked for writing focus work Mm -hmm. and 1230 to 230 is blocked for you know, open, like free flow focus work, whatever it is that I really need to be working on. Um, and having that blocked out and then having the 30 minute block where I know I'm going to be emailing and that's what I'm doing during that window, uh, I find is really, really helpful. So you alluded to it, but what, how is that, what you just described that, that day, how has that evolved since you entered the workforce? Um, a lot. I mean, I, um, I started on a pretty traditional path in finance where, you're working 80 to 100 hour weeks. Um, part of that is 
because that's the culture of it. And so you have to sit there for 80 to 100 hours. And it doesn't matter if you're scrolling on ESPN or on CNN.com or whatever it is that you're looking at, you're sitting there and you're doing that because you need to show the FaceTime. And this is pre-COVID in a culture where FaceTime actually really mattered. And you're traveling a lot and you're on the road. And um, there was a big, big component of just like put in the time and be there. A lot of it was also learning. Like you really... Early in your career, I think saying yes to a lot of opportunities is important. Um, you know, when you start your career, you're kind of like uh, on on a little you're, you're on a map, and the whole map is black, and you're in like the one spot that has light on it. And when you start saying yes to things, that's you kind of exploring the map. And as you're exploring the map, you light it up, and all the different areas become illuminated. And only once you've lit up the whole map do you know where the gold is. So if you don't do that, if you don't explore around and say yes to a bunch of things and light up the whole map, you have no idea where you should be digging. And my whole perspective has been that during your 20s, you know, early 30s, you should really be just focusing on saying yes and lighting up the whole map. And then after that, you can focus on the highest leverage places where you should really be digging, where you can actually find the gold and where you can actually deploy the highest leverage energy, you know, the two to four hours of work into the things that are driving 10x like outputs for you. I mean, I'm making five times as much money today as I was in my prior thing, working way, way less because I figured out where the gold was and I figured out where my energy is actually going to turn into really, really good outcomes versus me just, you know, scouring the earth going crazy to just like move little bits of dirt around. Yeah. Did it take you turning 30 and having a light bulb moment or did you crash and burn and you learned that way? Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, I crashed and burned for sure. Um, Somewhat unintentional. I mean, the crash and burn for me was around personal life stuff of, um, you know, just like for for me, it was frankly just a conversation with a friend um, who asked me um, how life was going. And I said, it's going okay. But at the time, we lived in California, which was really far from my parents and far from family. And I said that that was kind of weighing on me. Uh, And he asked how many, uh, you know, how old are your parents? And I said, you know, around 65. He was like, well, how often do you see them? I said, once a year. And he said, okay, so you're going to see your parents 15 more times before they die. And I remember it just being like a punch to the gut. It completely knocked me out. And I really had, I mean, I had like a full-blown panic attack around it, basically, of just thinking about the way I was living my life, what I was doing, what I was focusing on, and why I was focusing on those things. Um and wanted to make a change. And so the next day I woke up in the morning and told my wife that I wanted to move back to the East Coast. And within 45 days, I had quit my job. We had sold our house in California and bought a house on the East Coast to move back to be closer to family. Um, and that was a real aha moment for me. It was just like, life is flying by. You don't get this time back. And um, it was time to start really living by design rather than by default. Yeah. I so, um, so sort of shifting gears. I saw you put a tweet out that had a uh, sort of a, a screenshot of your alarm clock system <laughs> in the morning, and you were talking about this concept of developing alter egos mm-hmm. for yourself. I think one of them was like morning monster, or mm-hmm. like be hard, or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, what is the the thinking? behind that? What does that do for you? Can we guarantee that doesn't break off into split personality disorder? (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people ask about the split personality (laughs) disorder thing. It cracks me up. Um, You know, the idea behind all this is the concept is character invention, which is the idea that you can create characters that show up in sort of your ideal version of yourself in a given situation. It's not actually a different person. The idea is not to create like a totally different human being. To me, the idea is to create 
who you want to be in that moment, the person you are that you want to actually show up the most. We all have these people inside us. Like I, I know there is a version of me that is super hyper present as a father and husband, but it's sometimes really hard if you're not actively thinking about that to switch off the professional version of you who's looking at his phone and checking emails, checking texts, responding to things, you know, trying to be plugged in. It's hard to switch from that to the version that you want to be when you're showing up with your family. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea behind the alarm clock system. It was from uh, an executive coach friend of mine named Eric Partaker, who had the idea to actually create alarms in your phone. You can label alarms on an iPhone. And to have the alarm go off at the time when you want to switch to that mode, whatever it is, version of you. And you know, it's similar to like Beyonce had Sasha Fierce, her stage presence and character. Kobe had the Black Mamba. It was like his competitive streak late in games. And we can all do that in our own lives. So the morning monster you alluded to is like, when I wake up in the morning at 4.30, I want to get out of bed and hit the ground running. And I want to go hit my cold plunge. I want to get my workout in. I want to do the things uh, that require a lot of discipline and energy to really you know, get, get out of bed and do. And then similarly, at the end of the day, when I want to flip the switch from my work mode and be you know, really present and high energy as a father and as a husband, I sometimes need the trigger to say like, okay, it's time. I got to flip the switch and turn into that. Um, and it helps. I think it, it, it helps me. It's maybe not for everyone and maybe some people don't feel like they need it and that's totally fine. Um, but for me, it has really helped. I, a broader point with anything that I ever write, it's funny to me when people, uh, you know, criticize it or say like, oh, this is crazy, whatever. I've never once said, anything I write is for everybody. I don't sit back and say like, here's the answer. This is the way to live your best life. Like take it, you know, you're an idiot if you don't do this. I'm really just trying to propose things that have helped me. And if other people want to embrace them and do them, great. If they don't, also great, totally fine. Um, the bigger thing for me is like, I don't think I have any answers. I really am just trying to help people ask better questions. Yeah. Like, for example, a cold plunge might not be for me. Totally. Right. Because I think cold plunges for very few people, actually. It's become sure. kind of a trend. Yeah. Um, there's a cold plunge culture. Yeah, and just... there's like a whole fad around it. And you can, you know, you can get a lot of likes by posting cold plunge videos on Instagram. You can also get a lo lot of likes by, like, making fun of cold plunge people on Instagram. And so it's like this whole fad and culture. But it's definitely not for everyone. My wife will not be caught dead in my cold plunge. Um, <laughs> and I don't expect her to. Like, I don't, you yeah. know, it's not like I'm sitting back saying, like, if you don't get in the cold plunge, you're not going to be a success successful mother. Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's an absurd comment. But for me, it gives me a lot of energy and it fires me up to start the day. So I like doing it. I want to keep doing it. Um, but it's not for everyone. Yeah, sure. One more quick wellness thing yeah. before we move on. Do, anything else like that you do or recommend in the morning that might be or, or throughout the day, take care of yourself, body? I mean, my mind. first like 20 minutes of my morning, I get out of bed, I get in my cold plunge for five minutes. Um, and then I drink, uh, my like little morning concoction, which is a scoop of, um, AG one, which I've been taking since 2011. Athletic, um, athletic greens yeah. supplement. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. AG one by athletic greens. Um, I met the founder back in 2011, like when he was just starting the company, he was trying to recover from a back injury rugby player. Um, and he was training at my gym and I was like in college as a sophomore in college and he was starting out creating this stuff. And I had been getting sick a lot at school. And so he gave me um, some of the some of the stuff. And I took it back with me to school and I stopped getting sick. And so I just figured, okay, there's something to this. And basically I've been taking it probably like 98, 99% of days since then. So I, I take a mixture of that with um, Element, uh, L-M-N-T. It's like uh, electrolyte powder that I take in the morning. 
mainly I've been taking that since I started running a lot because it just replenishes you in the morning, sodium and stuff. Um, but then I hit the ground running. I mean, go get a coffee and, and get to my desk. Cool. Um, how do you define um, success and failure? Big question. Um, yeah, we'll get right to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No yeah. Um, I, success is an interesting thing to me because I previously used to tie everything to financial outcomes. Like I, I thought, um, you know, I want to make this much money. And I spent the early years of my career um, assuming that I was going to be happy when I made X, got X, you know, achieved X, got promoted to X, whatever that was. And what I realized was... I kind of arrived, like I was 30 and I had done all those things and I wasn't any happier. And really I had this like nagging feeling that I just needed to do more because I would see people that were doing more, earning more, had a bigger house, better car, whatever all the other things were, the goalposts just shifted on me. And then I just started feeling like, um, okay, I actually am going to be happy when I go do that, whatever that next thing is. Um, and that was when I started to realize that something was wrong with the way that we as a culture define success and those moving goalposts, this when then trap of like, when I get X, then I'll be happy. The reality is it's just going to shift and happiness is an inside job. If you're not happy, you're never going to be happy because you accomplish certain things. I define success as just the feeling of internal joy and fulfillment on a daily basis. If I feel on a daily basis, like I'm, uh, motivated to, go about the ordinary things that I have to do and that I want to do, that to me is success. I don't view it as like some end goal on a daily basis. If I'm excited and, um, you know, kind of having joy filled moments with my family and with work and purpose and meaning in the things that I'm working on, that to me is success. Yeah. What about failure? Failure to me is getting to the end and feeling like I climbed the wrong mountain. This is menopause. What you're describing is how I've been. Uh, I've heard it. What's that term? Uh, th- this this you know thing that happens to specifically young men when they get around thirty. So twenty eight to thirty, they've been climbing a mountain for most of their twenties. Mm-hmm. Especially you know get, you get out of college, you get into the real world, you climb this mountain. You sort of had of a a set of ideals that you like to have by that time you get up you can see the the top of it and and you realize that that may not be what you want yeah i mean and, and you have to you have to choose right you have to make a choice do i climb back down the mountain and pick a new path yeah do i just stick it out and most people don't do that that's no. the that's um i would say that's the biggest driver of unhappiness is you spend the first 10 years of your career climbing a mountain you look at the top or you don't look at the top. Most people actually never look up and never think, okay, who has actually won this game that I'm playing? And do I actually want the prize that they won when they got to the top? Most people never do that. So that's step one is like asking and answering that question. The second step is if the answer is no, if you look up and you're like, I actually don't want to climb this mountain. I'm climbing the wrong mountain. I don't want the prize that's at the top of this. Are you willing to turn around and go backwards to go find the right mountain? Most people are not willing to do that because it's really scary. And so what happens is they end up living in that limbo in the middle of the mountain. They're never going to climb it all the way to the top because they don't have the energy or the motivation to get to the top of that mountain. And they're also not willing to go back down and find the one where they're going to have purpose and meaning and energy. Um, And that, I think, is a very, very sad thing. Yeah. You would suggest climbing back down the mountain if you are not happy. 
if you have the capacity and ability to do that, given your situation. Sure. I think there are a lot of people who their work is a means to living the other areas of their life, to providing for people. Um, and you have to live that way because of your you know baseline situation. And I think for people like that, that's totally fine to do that and to just like work as a means to being able to support your family and to take care of the people that you love and then enjoy life in all of the other amazing ways that you can alongside that. I don't think work has to be some unbelievable, meaningful, purpose-driven thing for everybody. I think it's impossible to say that it ever will be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have plenty of friends who live incredibly rich, you know, meaningful lives and hate their work. They, they go and they're going because they need to make money and then they want to be able to come home and spend time, coach their kids' little league team, hike on the weekends, and, like, they want to be able to live their life and they go to work in order to be able to do those things. I think that's totally fine too. Um, but if you are energized, you, if you want to feel real purpose and meaning in your work and that is important to you, I think you have to climb back down the mountain. Yeah. Do you so it was a quote I saw from you. I don't know if it was your quote or not. If it is, it's very well done. But it said never never let the quest for more distract you from the beauty of enough. That is me. That is you. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> um so I uh, you know, personally in my own life, I think I struggle sometimes between um, you know, getting lost in the ideal a little bit and losing sight of the real, right? Especially when chasing better, mm-hmm. right? especially when chasing better. Mm -hmm. So uh, how do you, what would you say to someone that um, wants to improve, whether it be, um, you know, physically, uh, emotionally, psychologically, Mm -hmm. um, but is, is, uh, struggles to hold the tension between like, you know, pushing yourself forward and just unrealistic expectations? Yeah. I think you need to find a balance Everything is always going to be intention. The most beautiful things in life are always intention. They're right. like you're you're actively playing a line between two things. This is one of those areas, and it's balancing the tension between wanting to grow, wanting to get better at things, wanting to grow, and appreciating where you are and the moment and the joy that comes from the present. And balancing that tension, I think, is like the most fundamental tension of life because. When you stop growing is kind of when you start dying in some ways, I think. Like when you stop wanting to learn more and grow mentally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it is, um, you start feeling this level of stasis. You're like, okay, I'm not progressing in life. And so balancing that desire to grow with the feeling that you can experience pause, feel gratitude, and experience joy on a daily basis is something that everyone needs to figure out their own definition of. What I would say has really helped me is deconstructing the word more into the daily actions of making progress. More for most people means some achievement, some promotion, some bonus, some status, you know, some new thing on their LinkedIn, whatever it is. That's what most people define as their more. And so they're like, oh, I'm going to be happy with that thing. And so they start on the quest for that next thing. And it's an achievement. It's not a daily action. For me, more is a daily action. More is I want to get a little bit smarter today, or I want to get a little bit better at this thing that I'm working at, or I want to understand the world a little bit more, have a great conversation with a friend to deepen that relationship. That is my definition of more. It's daily actions. It's like those unremarkable things every single day that are my version of more. It's not making a million dollars more 
or it's not getting a promotion or it's not some like achievement, uh, you know, unlock like a video game level for me. Um, and that difference has helped a lot with my daily happiness. So that's a process, process based. Yeah. Uh, reward, not, not a result. Yeah. Based. I think it's process based, but it's, you know, it's like daily reward rather than some long-term thing that you're like looking out into the future of saying, I'm all, Oh, I'm going to be happy when I get to that thing Yeah, because you're not, you're going to get to it and you're just going to be annoyed that you no longer have a goal and you're going to figure out what the next one is. It's a mirage. You get, you get out there and it disappears and reappears out on the horizon. The daily ones, you can wake up every single day and say, what are the core elements of my ideal day? One of the core elements for me is feeling like I got better at something. Don't care what it is. It could be a relationship. It could be physically. It could be mentally. I want to get a little smarter. I want to read something that makes me think, whatever it is. Um, I want to feel like I got better at one thing every single day. And if I do that, I know that I'm growing. I know that I'm getting my more in that small, small way on a daily basis. And how do you monitor that? Is this just a feeling you get? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to honestly be cognizant. Like I, I wrote down what are the core ele- elements of my ideal day. And that was one of them. And I almost want to feel like I'm checking the box on that. Mm-hmm. Like what was one thing that actually made me think differently or uh, made me think deeply? What did I progress on? Like, did I have intensity around this one thing that I was going after today? Um, but yeah, it's a feeling and it's a, um, you know, it's a feeling that I think is just really important to feel again for the human condition of wanting to feel like you're getting better to not just feel like you're going through the motions on a daily basis. So many people complain about their lives because they feel like they're on this groundhog day, right? Like Tom Hanks, you're just like, wake up in the exact same life over and over again, and you're not going anywhere and you don't know what the vision is for where you're going. The answer to that is feeling like you're getting a tiny, tiny bit better at something every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, James Clear talked about that in Atomic Habits, like the 1% better every single day. And I don't actually think it's possible to get 1% better every single well, day. Well, I was going to ask that because it's not totally linear, is it? Right? No, it compounds. Right, it compounds. So everything is about staying in the game to allow positive daily decisions to compound. Mm-hmm. Everything. And that's, again, relationships, physically, mentally, anything that you're doing, everything is about that. My whole belief is that you just have to make one good decision and then make another good one and then make another good one. It's n- There's nothing that complicated about success or achieving great things. It really comes down to that. And if you're on a terrible path, the really liberating thing to know is that you're one good decision away from being in the other direction and tilting it positively. You can be like negatively compounding the hell out of everything. You can be like letting your health deteriorate. You haven't worked out in months. You're eating like crap. You're doing all these things. And if you go for a 30-minute walk tomorrow and then you do that again the next day, all of a sudden you're actually – you've turned the entire thing in your direction with one good decision. So all it is is like make one good decision and then make another good one and make another good one. Matthew McConaughey um, in his book Green Lights talks about – he has this thing called one in a row where he's just like – all I knew I had to do was just one in a row, and then you do one in a row again. Because these big goals, big progress, all of these things are really intimidating because you think about the long chain of stuff that you have to do. Like sure. in order to run a sub-three-hour marathon, it's like what I'm trying to do right now. I know there's like a million training sessions between now and when I have to do that. It's really miserable to think about. If you deconstruct that back to the present, the reality is you just have to go for one good run, like one good focused run today. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to do it again tomorrow, and then I'm going to do it the next day. Alcoholics who are going through rehab, going through AA, that's all it is, one day. 
I'm just going to tackle today, not think about anything else, and then I'm just going to tackle the next day. Yeah. It's an extremely powerful thing for any area of your life. Yeah. Golf golf gets um, golf is fun that way because you are oftentimes we are one thought away. We're we are a th- a thought or a feel yeah. away from from playing, you know, the best golf of our life. And so that that pursuit is often yeah, you know, pretty hard to stop. It's big in sports. I mean, in baseball, my pitching coach at Stanford always used to say you're one pitch away from getting out of any situation. Mm. And it's a really powerful thought for your life to just know, you know, you can be in a terrible spot. Things can be so spiraling in a bad direction against you, but you're one good, well-executed pitch away from getting out of it. And it cuts the other way. Like in golf, one thing I always noticed about amateurs versus professionals, I played with my analyst my last year um, in in finance was the captain of the Stanford golf team. He had retired and, and was with us. And we went and played around with a couple of his former teammates who were playing professionally. Uh, and I played with them, and I was garbage. And, you know, they were obviously very good. And one thing I noticed was – both of us uh, hit bad tee shots on on this one hole, and I was like behind a tree, uh, you know, two hundred yards out, and he was in the same spot ish. And my inclination was like, all right, I'm gonna hit a two hundred yard draw around this tree to the green. Mm-hmm. And I hit it, and it hit the tree and went backwards, and then I was two hundred thirty yards away and in a bad spot. I ended up making the triple bogey. He literally just like turned, punched a little, you know, pitching wedge back into the into the fairway and then hit a shot up and took his medicine, and took a bogey or something like that. And I remember just thinking after the round, like there was a real lesson in that, mm-hmm. that a professional actually, when they get down, they're not trying to do the heroic thing to make, you know, turn this into a birdie. They know, okay, a bad thing happened. I'm going to minimize the damage in this situation. I'm going to stay in the game because making a triple bogey takes me out of the game. But making a bogey here, I can make it up. That's, mm-hmm. That keeps me in the game. And so when I talk about staying in the game, that's really what I mean. It's like when you get in a rut – you just need to make sure you get out of it. You don't actually need to do the heroic thing to like immediately jump back and you're back on the back on the horse and driving things sure. forward. You actually just need to work your way through it and minimize the damage so that you can stay in the game. Yes. Course management has all of all of those things that you talked about, yeah. the scenarios, just um the other thing controlling is controlling emotions, yeah. discipline, yeah. right? It's all packed into that one scenario. The other thing that I always think about from sports, another lesson that I think is a powerful one for life, we had this thing at Stanford called compound mistakes. And it was on our chart. So at the end of every outing, you had this chart that they made for you of your outing. And you would have to kind of fill in different aspects of the chart and write a little like journal on how you felt the outing went. And you'd have to turn it in. And we had this thing called compound mistakes, which was after um, after a walk or a hit by pitch. So like a controllable negative thing that you did, not giving up a hit, which is kind of luck, but a, a walk or, or a hit by pitch. Did you get the next guy out after that? And you would either get a plus if you got the next guy out or you would get a minus. And basically the quality of any outing was determined by whether you had a bunch of pluses or whether you had minuses. Because the whole point was you can't control the fact that you just screwed that up, that you had the bad thing happen, that you walked or hit the guy. You can control how you bounce back from it, whether you get the next guy out mm. and whether you did the thing that you needed to do to get to like put in the effort to get the next guy. And when you did, 
you tended to have a good outing and you would get it you'd manage your way through situations and kind of perform at your best and when you didn't it spiraled in a negative direction and so again just like a really really powerful lesson for life to avoid compound mistakes when you do a bad thing which always happens are you going to bounce back from it slow down pause and make the right decision or are you going to get emotional and spiral in a negative direction yeah it seems like your baseball team uh, left a, uh, especially it's, I yeah. don't know if all, all division baseball teams are doing this, but it, it, it sounds like it sowed the seeds of, you know, a lot of these things that you are now preaching. Um, is that yeah. fair? Yeah. I mean, I spent the first 20, I don't know, 23 years of my life, like my identity was tied up in a sport yeah. and I was so deeply committed to it. And I thought that it was what I was going to do for a living. I mean, I really, it was really my identity for many, many years. And so that really has stuck with me and that all the mindsets and the things I learned on the field and, um, you know, the resilience, getting punched in the face and needing to get back up. Uh, those things have been really, really powerful for me in life. Yeah. Do you, do you recognize, um, I mean, maybe not for yourself because it seems like you have a, a just sort of a different motor than most, but how difficult it would be for, a lot of us who play, who commit that much to a sport, and then when it's not there anymore, you know, kids leaving college, especially yeah. Division One, Division Two, well, any athlete really to to transition. Yeah, it's terribly difficult. Yeah, I mean, the ident- identity is everything in life, right? And when your identity gets taken away, either by someone else, by an injury, by the fact that you're not that good and you didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. In my case. Um, it's really challenging to figure out what your new identity is. And that period of transitioning your identity is a painful period for most people. Because if you don't have the natural landing spot of the next thing where you're going to commit and and deploy all of that energy that you've been putting in for so many years into that one thing, it's really painful, that that period. And you see people go through terrible bouts of mental health challenges dealing with that identity shift. I mean, I've had teammates who I love dearly that have gone through terrible struggle. And they're like Stanford educated, you know, degree from an amazing school, all these things going for them. But your identity gets taken away. It doesn't matter who you are, how wealthy you are, whatever. It's painful, painful experience. I mean, it's like real destruction in your life. The thing I've always come back to, it's like from ancient Hindu teachings. I mean, my mom is Indian, so it's kind of from our family, is the seeds of creation are sown during destruction. And when you're going through those periods of destruction, those periods where your identity is being torn away, it's very loud. It's very, very painful. But the seeds of your next rebirth and of your next creation are being sown during that period. And that, to me, is a really comforting thought to realize is you just need to outlast the darkness of that period in order to come out on the other side. You need to figure out where that energy is going to be redeployed. Yeah. Would you say that um, a preventative measure would be to try to distance yourself from anything that you would consider like this is my identity this thing that I do is my identity or is it just that's sort of inevitable and and there are better ways to transition out of that and build a new identity I think it's probably hard to achieve 0.001% outcomes without having your identity truly tied up in something Uh I think there are very few people who should strive for 0.001% outcomes Um, far too many people in college think that they're going to be the next, you know, uh, whoever baseball player or, you know, Aaron judge or whatever. And, um, or the next tiger woods, whatever in the golf context. Um, 
you know, there's a handful that should uh, because they are that talented, that driven, that motivated towards it, and they might actually achieve it. But we are pretty delusional naturally about our own ability. I was so deluded. You know, I really thought like, oh, yeah, I'm going to make it. I can do this, whatever. And so my identity was very tied up in it because of that. And it took having the sport taken away from me by an injury to realize um, that I needed to find what the next thing was and how I was going to shift and deploy that energy into a new thing. Um but I think being able to hedge your identities a little bit um, and come to that realization that probably not going to be doing this for the rest of your life and you probably need to be building a different area is something that schools should actually be supporting more with their student athletes as well. I mean, at Stanford, which is a place where you'd think that would be happening, I didn't really feel like it happened. I had no idea what I was going to do after after baseball. And I don't think they do a good job of it today. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of opportunity for helping people because it's a mental health issue. It's not a it's not a job security issue. Like these kids are going to go get jobs. They're very personable. They've been on teams. They're going to be fine, but it's a mental health issue um, that is arising on campuses around the, around the world. Yeah. Would you describe yourself as a confident person? Yes. Where does, where does that come from? Um, when's the last time, a better question would be, when's the last time you were without it? Uh, I don't know, a year ago, two years ago. Okay. Um, I would say I was, I, I was, um, Exterior confident, interior deeply insecure for the first 30 years of my life, probably. Yeah. Um, and I would say my insecurity came from a feeling that I wasn't achieving on the level that I expected of myself. And so I created this kind of fake puffed up exterior to like talk about myself that I was achieving these great things. And it just wasn't really grounded in reality. And if you were on the outside looking in, you probably would have seen someone that appeared to be achieving great things but was also arrogant about it. Internally, now that I'm able to actually open up about myself and be vulnerable about it, it was just I was insecure. And it made me, uh, you know, live in a way that I don't think was in accordance with my core values and who I wanted to be as a person. Um, I'd say now I've come to a point in my life where I'm like so – content, joy-filled, um, and feel like I'm operating within my zone of genius on a daily basis to where I don't really care whether people think I'm accomplishing or achieving great things anymore. I don't feel the need to talk about things that I'm doing or, or achieving or what I'm, you know, what I'm doing, et cetera. Um, and that's been really, really, uh, just like healthy, frankly, but also just liberating. What's the zone of genius? Zone of genius is this idea that um, you're you're kind of um, operating within the area that is unique to you, like your N of one, yeah. um, where you can operate in a place where your interests, your passions, your energies all align, and um, you know be earning within that area. Yeah. Um, do you have just something I'm curious about? Do you have an internal monologue? Are you an internal monologue guy? Um, yes. Okay. Yeah. I. Um, I was a big negative self-talker for a long time. Um, part of me thinks it was helpful because I created like this internal standard of excellence where I just would tell myself it wasn't good enough if I didn't feel like I was living up to that standard. And I think it's unhealthy for most people probably, but I found it motivating. Um, I found it motivating because I knew I was capable of that and I just wasn't pushing myself to it. And so the negative self-talk, I think at times actually did help me. Um, most people I think need to flip negative self-talk to positive. And that's really because of confirmation bias. When you, 
when you negative self-talk yourself, you're creating these negative beliefs about yourself. When you have negative beliefs, you go out and find a bunch of evidence to confirm those negative beliefs. You'll find evidence that proves you're a loser. When you flip that and you start believing positive things about yourself and saying positive things to yourself, you start finding evidence that confirms those positive beliefs. And that creates a ton of momentum in your life uh, in a positive direction that is so, so powerful. So, and it's as simple as that. It's like if you're feeling really insecure and you can flip the dialogue internally to being positive and start compounding those positive actions and finding that positive evidence that you know the little things that you're doing that actually are pushing you in the right direction, it can really turn around the trajectory of your life. I want to ask about how you flip it to to positive, but do you? That's a tricky one because I think the self doubt piece, um, or or being a, a very harsh self critic, is important at times. You know, um, I think it. I think, like you said, it pushes you to do things that you otherwise um, wouldn't. So, I mean, am I wrong there? I'd say on average, people are too tough on themselves. Yeah. Um, if you're in a negative space in your life, telling yourself you're shit and that you're a loser doesn't yeah. get you out of that. Well, I think there's some constructive ways you can go yeah. like self or, or yeah. self-doubt. I just think or- it requires being in like a certain baseline level of comfort with your emotions and with your, uh, yeah. you know, with where you are in life in order to do that. I was always, you know, it was like. I'm at Stanford playing baseball and I'm negative self-talking myself. Like I'm doing all right. Things are, things are pretty good. Sure. Um, if I was in a bad dark space in my life and you know, I'd been fired or, you know, was down and out going through some depression or something, talking negatively to myself definitely isn't going to help. Sure. So there's a time and place for it. Um, but I I think when you use it to push yourself, I think it's, it can be, it can be healthy. Yeah. Like, I cheated myself there. I took a shortcut. Yeah, there. and just I, being honest with yourself. I mean, right. honestly, like, I don't even think of it as negative or self-doubt as much as it's honest. like, let me be actually open with myself about why I'm doing these things. Most people aren't even willing to do that, let alone vocalize it to someone else. But, like, for me to sit here and tell you um, that I was a deeply insecure person and I didn't like the way I acted uh, for many years of my life has taken a long time for me to get comfortable saying that to you. It took even, you know, it took almost as long for me to be able to w- say that to myself. And so right. that's a massive amount of progress for me personally is to be able to actually be honest with yourself that you're not living up to what you should be doing. Part of that is like, what is motivating you on a daily basis? And just being honest about that. There's all these people that are like, oh, I'm not motivated by, yeah, I'm not really motivated by money. I don't really care about money. And inside they're like, yeah, I'm motivated, but you know, I, I want that. Like what, what, are the, what are the things that you're actually driving towards and being able to open up to yourself about those and actually have an internal dialogue um, is important. I mean, it's why I go for so many walks during the day. Like I, I love being outside walking. It's how I process information. It's how I ideate on things those walks to me are like personal therapy. Like I, I'm thinking about things. I'm wrestling with stuff that I'm challenged by. I'm trying to, you know, see how ideas mingle in my mind. Um, and that's when I'm ending up coming up with a lot of the things that create progress in my life. Yeah. So how, what was the process like of flipping that dialogue to positive? Was it a long process? Was it another thing that you just compounds slowly? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, the great thing about all of this is that it just create it, it it just requires a tiny bit of movement and you get on the right cycle. Um, personally, I think working out will change your life in this way. And why I say that is 
when you work out, like if you if you're upset with the place you are in life, if you wake up at 5 a.m. and you go to the gym and work out for 30 minutes, you're going to start eating better because you don't want to throw away the progress that you just created in the gym. You're going to start sleeping better because you're tired at night because you woke up early and you worked out. When you sleep better at night, you're going to focus better the next day at work because you're sleeping better at night. So all of a sudden, this tiny little action of just getting up early and going to the gym, getting out the door, creates this positive virtuous cycle in your life. When that happens, you start thinking of yourself a little bit more as a winner. Like, damn, there aren't that many losers that wake up at 5 a.m. and go and work out. Very, very few. It's not like guaranteed that you're going to succeed by doing that, but I don't know many losers that wake up at 5 and go and work out. Just like doesn't really happen. And so you start thinking of yourself a little bit as a winner, and you start stacking one win, and then the next day you do it, and there's two wins, and then there's three. And all of a sudden you do it for two weeks, and your whole mindset around who you are and what you're capable of has changed. All of a sudden, you're a disciplined person that does the thing they say they're going to do. Uh, you know, you're pushing your physical health in a positive direction. You're pushing your focus professionally in a good direction. And your whole life has changed very, very quickly. Um, so I think you can do it quickly. It just requires taking that first action. Yeah. I mean, I can confirm that just 30 minutes. I, so I took. I did not go to the gym for two years. I used to be in what I thought was decent shape. This year, I started to go back. 30 minutes and there was like this have you heard of uh, Diderot effect no the, the, there's an old French philosopher who lived in poverty purposefully uh, or by choice mm-hmm. uh, for many years and I believe he was he wrote the first encyclopedia and the queen loved it and she wanted to build him a big new library mm-hmm. and he said no I don't need anything so she got him a scarlet robe mm-hmm. and he put this robe on and was like oh yeah I've heard damn this, this yeah. is nice yeah. and so I, I have to I have to redo the wardrobe and the closet and mm-hmm. stuff but it, the, that choice the 30 minutes yeah. went like on to say well I don't really want to eat that anymore yeah. um, I don't really feel like doing this other thing that might have been detrimental so it's just um, you are right in that yeah. you know small small choices become yeah. very very, very big choices. Yeah. What is one thing you're trying to get better at? Or, or what? many, several. Yeah. What are they? I mean, this is a silly thing. I'm really trying to get much better at running right now. Um, is that long distance? Is yeah. That- I want, I really want to run a sub. This is my, like, I, I'm a big believer in side quests. Like you have your main quest, which is like your big professional thing that you're going after at, or your personal life thing that you're going after. You kind of have your like two main quests, personal and professional. Um, I'm a big believer in the value of having like a side quest, Mm -hmm. which is like the thing on the side that you're just like driving towards, excited about, that's lighting you up. Um, Because I think people get a lot of energy out of those side quests. And so for me right now, my side quest is that I'm trying to run a sub three hour marathon within six months of starting to run, Um, which is like a pretty ambitious goal, I would say, in general. Um, You know, it's like a 650 pace for a marathon, so pretty quick. And, um, it's giving me a lot of energy. It's like a lot of fun. It's a totally new domain for me to learn about and learn the nutrition and the science around. And it's kind of like causing me to geek out about a whole new area of things and and to be competitive around a whole new area of things. Um, are you like a, listen to music, listen to podcasts while you run? Are you silence? Silence. Silence. You just raw out here? Yeah. Yeah. I have a, uh, I have a good friend, a neighbor who's like a big, uh, fitness influencer who we run together. And so like, if we're running at a slow enough pace, we'll chat. Um, but otherwise I'm trying to do just nothing just like with your thoughts. It's, it's amazing, amazing. Again, to the point on like personal therapy, it's an incredible time to just like be in your head. Cool. What um, you mentioned, quest. Do you think that people in general have too many of them? They pick up too many. You mentioned you have um, like two, like you have a primary, yeah. or one or two, and a side. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to like. 
push after an ambitious side quest if you have too many. Like, I yeah. certainly couldn't be trying to do this one plus become a sub-10 handicap golfer plus, you know, like, I just can't. You don't have enough time to do sure. all those things. Maybe if I didn't have a kid, I could do both of those. But um, I think you have to, like, if you're really going to go after an ambitious side quest, you got to really commit. Like, I'm really trying to really focus on this thing and the training around it. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think in general, probably you need to, like, figure out what are you really going to commit to. Yeah. Or they're not really side quests. It's, at that point, they're, like, hobbies. If you're just going to kind of, like, yeah, I'm going to maybe try to get better at this. Sure. So running is your is, is the thing you are currently getting better at every day. Yeah, I'm getting better at it every day, which is fun. Yeah. Um, that's definitely fun for me. So there was a... Um a tweet uh, last year that um, it was December and Morgan Housel said, uh, what's something that's harder than it looks? And you replied, hitting a golf ball straight <laughs> or even in the general vicinity of where you meant to hit it. <laughs> what, um, what is your experience with the game of golf been? What are your thoughts on it? Yeah. Um, do you have any plan? Do you, have you put it on a shelf? Like yeah. uh, look at it every now and again, like I might yeah. get into that later, like running. I, um, I lived on a TPC golf course, TPC Stonebray, in California for all of COVID, basically. Um, we bought a house there uh, November 2019 and lived there until May of 2021. And it was the most amazing thing in the world because during COVID, I was able to, like, in the evenings, I wasn't going into the office. So in the evenings, I could go out and just play nine by myself in the quiet and walk. And I had never really played golf before. I didn't grow up playing. Um, I played baseball, so I kind of... I would say I like got decent very very quickly, and then realized how hard it is to go from decent to very good at golf, yes. and that frustrated me. I just in general that frustrated me. And to be fair, I didn't put in the time on like lessons and things. I was just trying to go with my like broken swing and get better with a broken swing, which is very difficult to do. Um, but I ended up becoming okay. I was probably like a ten or an eleven, maybe at my best. Um, I got I I did. Uh, have a hole in one which was like really uh, my yeah and it was uh with like 10 15 friends there too which was amazing it was like a, be a lot of people upset round. at you listen um, golf community's gonna be very upset yeah, at you yeah it, it was um you skipped the line it was on the home course too <laughs> like it was it was just very fun the whole thing was it was an amazing experience um i don't know how much i'll ever get back at the time it was really important for my work um i really wanted to get pretty good because i was starting to get invited to all these nice courses for all the like finance fancy events that they start sure. throwing and so i got to play on a bunch of amazing courses um but it's a lot of hours uh to get really good at it and like i said i'm competitive and so i wouldn't i didn't have a whole ton of fun as a mid-teens handicap golfer and that's my own issue i needed to learn to have fun as a mid-teens golfer um or even as an 18 or a 20 golfer i needed to learn to have fun just like have some drinks with friends relax have fun i'm not good at that i'm not good at being like sort of bad or below average at things and so what it meant was that i either had to like side quest it and like really go all in on this thing and get really good at it which is hundreds of hours as you know or i had to like learn how to completely turn it off um and the alternative to those two paths because i'm not able to do either one of those was like i'm gonna pause on golf while you know the early days of of our kid um so we'll see i think i will eventually get back into playing and i'm hopeful that i can like go out and just play some fun rounds where i don't care that i'm shooting a hundred um but we'll see it's a very difficult thing uh to be bad at yeah. I mean, in some ways. If you're yeah. not used to being bad at things, for sure. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, but have a drink, yeah. you know, yeah. walk, yes. take three clubs, yes. you know, simplify. I would love and to play a part three course. Like, I would go do that for sure. Yeah, you mentioned Bandit Preserve. Yeah, that was amazing. Bandit was incredible. Who, who doesn't have a good time oh, there? Oh, God. Yeah. Golf paradise. Yeah. 
So um, there's a free there's a free ebook that you can download on your website, um, which is uh, 50 simple life hacks. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a theme that sort of is, is prevalent throughout all your work, mm-hmm. which is is this kind of like taking big complex mm-hmm. you know life struggles and boiling them down to um, very mm-hmm. simple answers. Do you think? Um, well, first of all, how are you able to go about doing that? Um, it's a very Richard Feynman-esque yeah. uh, technique. I wrestle with the stuff a lot. Do you? I mean, I just I just spend a lot of time thinking, to be honest. Um, I'm out on walks a lot. I run a lot without headphones, as we, as we talked about. Um, I just wrestle with these things a lot and figure out what is the most human way to distill this for really for people to understand and really connect with in a, in a real human connection type way. Yeah. Have you always been that way? Um, I've always loved storytelling. My mom is an incredible storyteller, and so I kind of grew up around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was always the one in the locker room that was, like, telling the embellished stories of the crazy stuff we were doing and having fun. And that was always my personality. And so I think it's sort of a manifestation of that. Yeah. What, um, what, what, is, your, what is driving you to do, that, to do this storytelling, to do this, you know? distill all of this stuff into very yeah. um, very clear, direct sort of, uh, you're providing tools to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, what, what, what do you want out of this? I want to reach a billion people and I want to impact a billion lives. Um, I don't have financial goals around these things. I really want to create impact in people's lives. And if I can have a tiny, tiny positive impact on someone's life in a real tangible way, that's incredibly rewarding to me. Yeah. So like when I write things about my own experience moving back to be closer to family and how important I think it is, and someone this week told me that they read that, moved back to be closer, um, and their mom got diagnosed with cancer and they'd passed away a few days ago and said how amazing it was that they had spent that last year being close and being able to see the person every day. And they didn't know at the time when they moved back home that it was going to be their last year, but they did it. And that to me is like this holy shit moment of uh, I can write something that actually creates a real tangible impact in someone's life on that level. Uh, And just this wow feeling of like what I was doing before was figuring out ways to make money. And now I can do something like that where, you know, there's people out there that have really felt an impact from things that I'm writing and sitting and thinking about. Um, And that's really special to me. And I take that as a gift, but also as a real responsibility to use the platform that I've built and that I'm building for uh, creating a positive impact in the world. Yeah. Um, and I try to do that. I'm like, I'm not negative. I don't attack people. I'm not like when people attack me, I just take it. I'm not responding to people. I try to never put out things that I think are negative or that have a negative connotation. Um, and I really mean it. I just, I don't want to invite more negativity into the, the world. Who's attacking you? I don't know. People get angry about random things on the internet. It's yeah. just classic, like Twitter classic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so f- I'll leave you with this. You you, uh, you also had a, a string called um, 32 Harsh Truths mm-hmm. that you wish you knew at 22, um, which is great. People can go read it. But selfishly, since I came all this way to talk to you, <laughs> what um, what would you? what is one of those truths that you – wish you knew at, um, say somebody who's 28 and, you know, about to get married and start a family and, uh, yeah. you know, what, what is something that you now who, who's the father, um, might tell that person. Time is so, so precious. 
And if you don't pause and appreciate these moments of ordinary beauty along the way, you're going to miss it and you're going to wish you could come back. I mean, your, your 80 year old self would give anything to be back in this moment that you're in today. So every frustrating, terrible, stressful moment that you go through at age 30, having a young kid, all the sleepless nights, all the screaming and crying, your 80 year old self would give anything to be back and to experience those again. Um, so just embrace it and enjoy it. Yeah. It's a tricky one because, you know, I hear what you're saying with the time thing, and then I'm going to go spend five hours on the golf course. So it's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the golfer's dilemma, as it yeah. were. Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, Sahil, I appreciate you sharing your insights with yeah. us. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Of course.